0: Hear now God's word for you. As a prisoner of the Lord, I beg you to live in a way that is worthy of the people God has chosen chosen to be his own. Always be humble and gentle, patiently put up with each other and love each other. Try your best to let God's spirit keep your hearts united. Do this by living in peace. All of you are part of the same body and there is only one spirit of God, just as you were given one hope when you were chosen to be God's people. We have only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one God who is the Father of all people. Not only is God above all others, but He is He works by using all of us, and He lives in all of us. Christ has generously divided out His gifts to us. As the Scriptures say, when He went up to the highest place, He led away many prisoners and gave gifts to When it says he went up, it means that Christ had been deep in the earth. This also means that the one who went deep into the earth is the same one who went into the highest heaven so that he would fill the whole universe. Christ chose some of us to be apostles, prophets, missionaries, pastors, and teachers so that his people would learn to serve and his body would grow strong. This will continue until we are united by our faith and our understanding of the Son of God. Then we will be mature, just as Christ is, and we will be completely like him. We must stop acting like children. We must not let deceitful people trick us by their false teachings, which are like winds that toss us around from place to place. Love should always make us tell the truth. Then we will grow in every way and be more like Christ, the head of the body. Christ holds it together and makes all of its parts work perfectly as it grows and becomes strong because of love. The Word of the Lord. For those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, we preached on two chapters earlier. Ephesians. And I want to cover that a little bit just because these things work together. They're like a house built up. And so it's hard to even preach about what I'm preaching about today without at least reviewing that a little bit. And what we talked about a couple weeks ago is that Jesus Christ had created this new community from Jews and Gentiles. He developed he, he destroyed the hatred between them. And so in the early church, they actually developed this idea, this theology that Jews and Gentiles, when they came together and became Christians, they actually represented a whole new race. They called Christians the third third race. They were no longer Jews. They were no longer Gentiles. And this was a radical way that Jesus demonstrated to all of them and to us that he can make peace in all of our lives. And so the point I tried to make, And that sermon was that Jesus Christ in our lives can make peace with people of other religions. That Jesus has made peace with people of other races and socioeconomic backgrounds. That Jesus has made peace with other denominations in us. And that ultimately the hard thing for us is that Jesus is calling us to peace with groups of people and individuals that we disagree with. And so here in chapter 4, what we just read for you today, the message in Ephesus begins to change. It's not just about the theology, it's not just about the foundation, it's now, how do you actually do this? How do you actually put these things in practice? As Christians, what would we do to make this happen? And it's here in the book of Ephesians that we see two different types of speech that were really common in ancient philosophy. I'm going to teach you some funny Greek words. The first is patrepsis. And that's simply a way that a philosopher or a theologian or an early church minister would call someone to a new way of life. would be trying to bring about a conversion in you. If I was trying to win you over to my side, I'd be using this type of speech that we call patrepsis. But the other type of speech that's being used here in Ephesians, it's called paranesis. And what it is, it is advice given to early Christians. It's as though someone is counseling them through a letter. It is good, sound, moral advice. And so that's what we have here in chapter 4. Paranesis, good moral advice. I I saw this short segment on uh, The Daily Show this week, a show on Comedy Central, and it was a man who wrote this book about the destruction of humanity and about all the many different ways we could somehow make ourselves extinct. A really delightful piece. (laughs) And so he wrote this whole book on it talking about these things. And there were the common ones. There was like nuclear war or somehow catastrophic climate change because of global warming or biological weapons. And he talked about that here in America, we have created superviruses just for research. And yet we also did the insanity of publishing how to make these uh, superviruses on the Internet. And how much nonsense this makes that we created an incurable form of influenza and other such terrible things. But he said of all those things, the thing that we should really be scared of are the little viruses that are cooking out there in nature waiting to strike. He said the thing we'd probably be really scared of is something like avian flu. And essentially the only thing that's keeping us safe from it now is that it can't currently be transmitted person to person. If many of you have seen a movie a couple years ago, it was called Contagion. It was actually about how the avian flu was weaponized, weaponized by nature. But we always live in fear that maybe someone could turn this bird flu and turn it into a weapon. And so today, I want to talk to you about how Scripture has been weaponized. Just like that flu sitting there and someone could take it into a dangerous weapon. Someone takes Scripture and turns it into a weapon. And one of those particular passages is found here in Ephesians. The weaponized Scripture, it's this one, and I'm going to read it in a slightly different translation than we had. It said, instead, and this is verse 15 of what we just read, instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ." How many of you have ever heard that phrase, speaking the truth in love, right? Use that as a parent or use that as a friend? And that's a funny little phrase, isn't it? It's a funny little phrase we as Christians have used to inflict unbelievable amounts of pain and suffering on each other in this world. What we have said and what we have done And countless things that we claim to have spoken the truth or done the truth, rarely do the recipients of our words or our actions actually feel the love. So, before we even get to the weaponized verse, I want to build back on that thing I said at the beginning that these scriptures wrap together. You cannot read verses in the Bible in isolation. You cannot have one without the other. So let's go back and look at the rest of these verses and see what we build upon. The first thing is said is, live your life worthy of the call. You have been called to a person of faith. Jesus Christ has saved you and placed you in this community. And He says... And this is what the Ephesians says to us. This is how we should behave. With humility and gentleness and patience. Accepting each other in love. Making every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. Gentleness, patience, humility, seeking unity. And so too often as a church, we begin with the assumption that we know what's right. And then we try to find a way to inflict that opinion on others in the most loving way that we can muster in that moment. But the problem for us is that love and humility and gentleness are not the root of our actions when we do that. Often it's self-righteousness, arrogance, the fear of what's different, a sense of being threatened or a lack of self-awareness that leads us to act. So we cannot begin to speak truth, to pursue truth, community, or deeper levels of faith unless it begins with love, gentleness, patience, humility, and a desire to be one with all of humanity. That has to be at the center of who we are. And I think for those of us in the church, a lot of times we're just unaware of our own actions. A lot of times we honestly believe some of the things We do are in love. I learned this funny little tool when I was doing CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. It's a part of our seminary training where we have to be a, a hospital chaplain, and you do about 300 hours in a hospital counseling people that are dying or going through surgery or experiencing difficulties. And you have to do these things called verbatims, which you come back and you talk together as a group, and you have to say, well, this is the thing I've said to this individual. And one of the things they ask you over and over is, why did you say that? Why did you say that? And you have to give them a reason. You have to say, well, I I think I said that because I had a similar experience with my father as this person did. And sometimes it puts you in awkward positions because you've left something out or you've said something too strongly. And people question your words. And so we learned this phrase that was, can I own those words? Do I own my description of what I did? That's a a behavior that my wife and I are trying to model. Sometimes I do a lot of things, and honestly, a lot of them are done out of utter ignorance. (laughs) You forgot to do the dishes, you'd say to do them. Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm terrible at that. And one of the things we've had to learn is to be better communicators with each other is to have utter honesty with our motivations with one another. It doesn't mean it makes me better at cleaning dishes or remembering to drop off a check. It's just trying to make us a little honest with each other and ourselves. So I think as Christians, one of the places we need to start before we even begin thinking about speaking the truth truth in love is for us to own our words and own our actions, to look deep within our souls and our lives and try to try to find out if we are really doing this out of the correct motivations. And so it moves on in Ephesians. The next part, it actually says this. It says, you are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you into one hope. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. God has given you the grace to each one of us measured out by the gift that is given Christ. You hear that word over and over, one, one, one. Clearly, God is calling us to be united, to be one with each other. And as it's said earlier in Ephesians, it's possible. At least Jesus Christ has made peace between us. But I think it's hard for us to hear passages like this calling us to unity, because I think we very rarely ever experience it. Many of us, many of our experiences in life are often like this cartoon. I had I emailed a cartoon to Chris if he could throw it up there. It's from the New Yorker. Uh, maybe not. Didn't check the email. <laughs> I'll describe it to you. Um, it's a picture of the three musketeers together, you know, the famous, they put their swords together, all for one, one for all. And so it's this hilarious picture they're putting down, and the caption below it just says, each man for himself. I think we gather together here as a church with the illusion of togetherness at times. Yet we leave as individuals with no ties between us, all pursuing our own agendas. And so many of us have just given up on this idea of naivety, uh, this idea of unity. We see it as naive, not possible, a fool's errand. And so we choose instead to only rely on ourselves or the people immediately near us. And I think also our attempt to find unity, we've often found in our lives, often divides us, especially within the church. We often say that we are one body, but we really don't mean it pursuits of unity sometimes divide us. I experienced that firsthand when I was in seminary. One of the things we were required to do our final year of seminary was to do a whole week's worth of chapel. Seminary, you have chapel every day. It's about a 30-minute service, and so that was your assignment, and so we drew people together, five of us. We were all from different denominations. Uh, We had men and women all together, and the point of our chapel was to say that everyone has a seat here at the communion table. We actually did and preached as a group teaching. We all sat around chairs around the communion table to try to illustrate that throughout the week. Everyone, all of humanity, has a seat. God has called us all here to this table. And as a result of that week of chapel, I got to have lunch with the dean a couple times that week. But this was not a friendly (laughs) get-together. Our group received a talking to from the dean. Our attempt at unity sometimes brings division. And I think this is the root of it. I, I, I honestly do believe this. I think the problem for us, often in the church, is that we are unable to accept the biblical definition of unity. So I want us to look again at those verses that come before that call to unity. This is the verses immediately preceding the ones I just read. It says, Conduct yourselves with humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love. Make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. Remember that these things build upon each other, so the foundation of unity is humility, gentleness, and patience. So unity is found when we accept each other with love. And so what's clear about this passage to me is that unity is is a process. It's not completed yet. We're never fully united. It's something we work on and we fight for, but rarely ever find in that moment. And I want you to notice the absence of the type of qualifiers we would add to unity. Be patient. Be patient with those that you share at least 70% of your theological worldview with. Except those who have the same understanding of the atonement as you. Be patient with those who share the exact same understanding of the Bible as you. One of the greatest quotes in the history of the church was said by St. Augustine in the early church. And it's been restated and reaffirmed by countless teachers, saints, missionaries, and reformers ever since. And it's this. It says, in the essentials, unity. and the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. It's a great quote. So what are the essentials? What unites us? And this is what I said earlier. I think it's tough for us to accept the biblical definition of unity. This is it, Ephesians, we find three. One Lord, one baptism, one God. Our love of our Lord Jesus Christ, the confirmation of our calling and salvation in our baptism and our shared relationship with our one God should create in us unity that outweighs any difference imaginable. It united that early church full of Jews and Gentiles and created in them a new communal identity. And so what unites us, we have to believe this and understand it and feel this, what unites us far outweighs what divides us. Ephesians is asking for unity, not conformity. Those are different things. So part of the call here in Ephesians is actually for tolerance. That's what it says in verse 2. Bear with one another. The assumption is not that all distinctions, all the things that separate us, will cease. But the assumption is that even with the persistence of differences, differences economically and differences socially, differences theologically, the church may nevertheless grow together as a body. Despite all those differences, God is still uniting us. One Lord, one baptism, one God. And so the journey moves on. The journey moves from gentleness and humbleness and patience. It moves to unity. In the next part of the layer, it says we are to become complete human beings. The actual verse is verses 12 and 13. It says, God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. And I think that phrase, the use of the word maturity or the use of the word adults is a little misleading. It actually means to become complete human beings. I think the best way I would describe it is here in the Tri-Cities area, we have the Appalachian League of Baseball. And oftentimes, the players that come here are not necessarily the highest drafted players. They're obviously great baseball players because they've been drafted into pro ball, but what we would describe them as is players that have one or two tools. In baseball, we view athletes as having five tools. They can hit for average, they can hit for power, they can run, they can play defense, and they can throw. Those are the five tools your best players in the world. A guy named Mike Trout, who plays for the Anaheim Angels, is the ultimate example of this. He can do it all. But a lot of the players here in the Appalachian League can do one or two things really well. If they're a pitcher, they can throw a fastball really hard, but maybe they don't have other pitches. If they're a hitter, maybe they can hit for average, but they're not very fast or they don't have much power. Or maybe they hit a lot of home runs, but they strike out a lot. And so they come here at the bottom level of pro ball So that they might become a more complete player. So they can add to their tools. So they can improve themselves. That's a better analogy. That's a better way to describe it. To become a complete human being. That's what you're called to be. But this is difficult for us because the mistake the church has made is that we're often told, deny your humanity. Deny it. Deny it. We, may, we mistakenly believe that be, to become more like God, we must become less human. And that's because we focus on humanity's frailness and mistakes and imperfections. But we should look at the person of Jesus Christ. We affirm that he is not only fully divine, but is also fully human. Jesus Christ is what Adam was intended to be in the beginning. He's the picture of what God is calling us to and shaping us to look like. Jesus is the fully complete human one. And He is the completeness we seek to imitate. So Jesus is calling us to embrace who we are created to be. I invite you be fully human. So it's finally at this point, where we reach our weaponized scripture to speak the truth in love? I'm going to read the verses for us again. Instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ who is the head. The whole body grows from him as it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments. The body makes itself grow and that it builds itself up with love as each one does their part. So as you can see, as we went through this, speaking the truth in love is merely a footnote at the end of this moral teaching. It is not a permission slip to speak our prejudices or judgments on others. This truth that can be spoken, spoken lovingly can only be found when we are patient with one another, when we are humble, when we are gracious, when we are united in the essentials, not the non-essentials. And when we have grown into the completeness that Jesus Christ has modeled for us. I believe in this. I believe this is behavior as a church that we can model. I believe in this church. I believe in this faith community. I believe that God has called us to something radical and amazing. I believe that God is changing our hearts, making us to care more about talking to others about our faith, making us to look on others with compassion, not judgment. I believe that God has given us the ability to find unity despite enormous differences, that God has laid out for us a vision to get out of our seats, to throw open the doors, to head out into the streets, to go out and proclaim the good news that we have experienced in our lives to share passionately with others what God has done for us, to heal those who are hurting, to give voice to those who have none, to offer love and community to all with no reservations. I believe that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do these things here within our church. I've seen it. I know you have too. And I feel the hope and excitement for our future. So this is simple moral advice to us. Brothers and sisters, let us be humble. Let us be gracious. Let us be patient with one another. Let us have a desire for unity and love. And let the unity of our one Lord and one baptism and one God bring us together. Let's have a passion for unity, not conformity. Let us love one another and help each other to become complete human beings imitating Jesus Christ, our Lord.